I'm married to Katie for the last 12 years. We've been going to Rolling Hills for about the last six years. I'm Patrick Steibel and I'm an eighth grader at Rolling Hills. I've been going to Rolling Hills for about five years now. I didn't come from a great background and it was God had chosen that it was time for me to leave that. We were foster parents for a period of time and Patrick and Taylor came to us and it became evident at some point that we were eventually going to be able to adopt them. And in the same token, in the same period, we also um, biologically had Will. God knew it was time to get adopted, and we got adopted by them. It felt like I could trust people and that I was loved. It felt, uh, it made me happy. Here we are, parents for the first time all in that same year, really, and, and we're really relying on God for wisdom um, to do everything from changing the diapers to uh, learning how to be parents to a, a teenager at that point. It's been exciting to see Patrick grow. Um, as you can imagine, he came from a background where he had to do a lot of things on his own and rely on himself. And so I think for a while, one of the hardest things for him to do was to really um, just give that up to God. And you know, ultimately, we saw him get baptized. And, and even since then, um, we've seen further progression where he is just um, somebody who loves to give and love on others and, and, be, a, and be, a God's, uh, be a servant for God. He has taught me how to live a life out and live my life in Christ and make my decisions with Christ and to stay on the path God has planned for me. For me, I have to realize that I'm a child of God and it all starts with that and knowing my identity is in Christ. Not just knowing about God, but being involved with God. And that, and that to me means making all your choices biblically and with God and doing them in a way of that God would be pleased. It's so important as being a father, especially to, to Patrick and Taylor, who, who really um, had a lot of loss in their life. And, and for Patrick as a man, he's gonna be a leader of his house one day. And I want him to know um, what it looks like to, to pour into, to, to get poured into, so that one day when he grows up and is a dad, he can be pouring into his children. And then that ultimately just spans out into the generations for, for years to come. To believe that this is our, our very last week in this summer series that we've been in through the life of David. Um, and, and hearing these testimonial moments of people who've said, hey, I am David. I am uh, the boy who had no clue what he was going to do in life, but that God plucked out of a herd and said, you're going to be king over Israel. I, I am David, the one who's struggled with the enemy's attacks throughout the world. And yet I've figured out how to remain faithful to God and to trust him in spite of the fact that somebody's after me or the system of the world that I'm in is so difficult. I, I am David, someone who's struggled with doubt and temptation and fear and, and just ultimately struggle and come out victorious on the other side because of faith to God and an, and an understanding of what it means to repent of sin. I'm glad that you've gotten to see these I am David stories, but what I really hope is that you've been scripting your own and understanding the, the kind of life that God has called you to live. I'm really excited about being back. I feel like I've been gone for a really long time, having spent a week in the Amazon and then a week at the Park Avenue Baptist Church last Sunday, where I'm happy to give a report that things continue to go well with this opportunity that we have to merge and have a permanent church home uh, in the next six months, which we need one as we vacate the lease at Belmont. We're just trusting every single day is an opportunity to put one foot in front of the other and say, okay, Here's us walking through a door that God has opened, and if he determines to shut it, we'll say, okay, 
But until then, we're going to keep being obedient and faith-filled and trust that he's got a plan for us. I'll tell you, Susan and I, when we got married, we had um, six years of just life as husband and wife. Wouldn't trade it for the world. It was like this extended honeymoon, and then kids came. God blessed us with a beautiful baby girl, and she was kind of a long time coming. Number two, not so much. Fifteen months later, there was another beautiful baby girl, and we thought, wow, it's like having twins, but you're pregnant twice as long, and the girls have just grown up together. And our jury was out deliberating for a really long time over whether or not we thought that a third kid should come into the picture, and finally the Lord intervened and said, okay, here's a third one. And I remember at the 20-week ultrasound, because here's the deal. A gender reveal is a surprise whether you do it at 20 weeks on a computer screen or 40 weeks in a delivery room. It's still a big shock as to what's going on in your life, even if you do the Chinese calendar and try to figure out based on that what your baby is. Now, I remember being in that room and the lady looking at the screen and saying, do you want to know the gender of your baby? And saying, yes, we do. And finding out that it was a boy, I may have screamed. I was really excited about this moment because it was new and different, exciting. And I, I may have also said, are you sure? And with the power of her mouse and the computer, she circled a certain area on the screen. And then she said, if it's not a boy, we have a problem. And I thought, this is great news. And the girls already knew at four and five years old that there was a baby in mommy's tummy. And so that night we had gathered together a few things from the store that were clearly like gender specific boy items, like a onesie that was blue with an airplane and a truck and all the kinds of things that just naturally seemed to go along with a boy baby. And we let the girls open it up that night after dinner as almost like a present to them. And I very distinctly remember their two responses. Nor Blake, who knew that we were pregnant, my middle child, who says humorous, off the wall, quite questionable things sometimes. She looked at the gifts as they came out of the box and she said, ah, it's a baby. And Lily Kate, the oldest, in, in what was teetering on the edge of sarcasm, looked at her with eyes rolled back and said, no, it's a boy. It, it was actually both. It was a baby and it was also a boy. We had this idea in our heads that we ought to do something really, really special for them, just the two of the girls before Simon came home from the hospital. And Susan, nine months pregnant, we get up on a Saturday morning and we go to the mall against our better judgment and we show up at Build-A-Bear also against our better judgment and we go through and we let the girls just have a whole morning with mom and dad where they got to do something special and they each made their little stuffed animal treat. We come home, we have this great celebration. A week later, their brother is born. And then this missionary that we knew came back from one of his journeys in Africa and he came back for a visit and we were excited to see him and loved our girls and was so excited. Saw him in the parking lot of the Franklin campus of our church and says, girls, I'm so excited to see you. Tell me, you got something really new at your house. What is it? And Nora Blake said, ah, a Build-A-Bear. <laughs> and Lily Kate looked at her and said, no, he means a brother. <laughs> boys are different. And, uh, and we've, we've really celebrated every single moment of having Simon in our lives. And this morning, the zoo, the Nashville Zoo, is actually a very special featured guest at our kids' ministry. They've brought some animals, learning about creation and how good God is and how distinct each one of those animals is over in the kids. Some of y'all are wishing you volunteered in kids' ministry now. See? Mm-hmm. That's right. We do fun things. So the zoo has come to visit today. And I know Simon, my girls are helping. Simon's beside himself to get to see those animals. He is just a little boy. 
but he's not hopefully going to stay that way. We're working real hard now to teach him the things that it means to become a man. There are many of you in this room that Simon's come up to on a Sunday morning and stuck out either the right or the left because sometimes he gets it wrong hand and literally looked you in the eye and squeezed your hand as hard as he could because he wanted to shake it like a man. We're working on look him in the eye, buddy, and he'll look up at you and, and shake your hand. Say, grip him hard. You can do this. And he'll grip it as hard as he can. Because we're doing the things that we think will signify what it means for him to be a man. And he often asks me, Dad, when are you going to teach me some more man things? And, uh, uh, and we're working on some of those things because we do have this idea that he won't stay a little boy. Um, but that one day he'll be a man. So you look at the life of David, and there's a verse that'll pop up on your screens. You don't have to look it up this morning. In fact, if you want to get a jump start on where we're going to spend most of our time, you can go to first. I'm sorry, Second Samuel, first and second, second Samuel chapter 24. But we're we're going to land uh, right first offset in First Kings chapter two. David is looking at his son's life, and also at the end of his own life, and passing down final words of wisdom. And it says, when the time drew near for David to die. He gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. He knew that the end was coming. And he said, so be strong, act like a man. And I think I looked up the, the, the Hebrew word here because I wanted to make sure that I was right in this context because there's a couple of different Hebrew words that we translate into the single English word man throughout scripture. So a lot of times when you're going through scripture and you read man, it's one word. And then another time you're going through scripture and you read man again because we're in our English Bibles. And what it really is, is another word. In the book of Genesis, the word for man is literally Adam. That's where we get the name Adam. And ultimately, what it really meant was mankind. You know that sometimes in our society, when we refer to man, we're referring to not just man biologically male, but we're referring to man biologically male and female, all of mankind. Basically, what it means to be human. And so, yeah, we get that Adam word, and it literally means to be man physically, this understanding of what it is to be a part of humanity. And there have certainly been a lot of characterizations and and missteps and abusive illustrations throughout history as you start to differentiate between man, mankind, and man, male, and woman, and the abuse that has come from that. But this word here in First uh, Kings chapter 2, act like a man, isn't the word Adam, it's the word ish. And that's a different word for man. It's specifically male in its gender and its understanding but it has a lot of different meanings to the word. And two of them are, are in your notes this morning. And I ask you this question, how is it that you want to be remembered the most? And for those of you in the room who are male, what does it mean to you to be a man? Does it mean you can hunt and catch a fish and then clean it with your done? Because if it does, check me out. Like, I don't even know what that even means. But it, does it mean you can, I don't know, throw a 50-yard pass or run fast? Does it mean that you're willing to go out in the parking lot right now and put it up and get into a fight? What, what does it mean to be a man to you? And at the end of your life, how is it that you want your manhood to be remembered? David's desire for Solomon to be a man and that understanding of the Hebrew word ish, it included a couple of different definitions. And, and the first one is servant and the next one is champion. 
that somewhere in the idea of this guy who's about to die looking at his son who he's passing on not just a name and a legacy but also a kingdom that he was going to be in charge of he looked at his son and he says i want you to act like a man and included in his definition of what it meant to act like a man meant the idea of being a servant and a champion Jesus said it best in the book of Matthew. He called his disciples together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority of them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, whoever wants to be a champion must first be your servant. According to Jesus, the way to win is to lose. And the way to be a champion is to live your life in service to others. So we've got some work to do in my house over, Dad, teach me some more man things. We do have to teach him how to win, but we have to teach him that ultimately that comes from being a servant. David is remembered as both. And ultimately as what it means to be a man who is after the very heartbeat of God. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from that. If you go to your Bibles in the, the book of Second Samuel and you're at the end of what is David's life in those passages of Scripture, you get several different chapters. I wish we could go through each one of them verse by verse this morning. But if you look at chapter 22, right on the outset, it says, David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all of his enemies in the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock my fortress and my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold, my refuge and my savior. And you look at that passage of scripture, that song of David, that song that he sang before God, and you can see the kinds of things that matter to him. Protection matters to him. A foundation matters to him. Something to build your life on matters to him. What it means to stand strong and firm in the face of an enemy in the world, that's what mattered to him. And he sings a song giving credit to God saying, everything that matters to me, everything that matters to my people, everything that is valuable in this life comes from you. You're the rock that we build all of that on. And what's really fascinating about first, I get so confused between the first Samuel, second Samuel, they really should rename these books. Between second Samuel chapter 22 is that verbatim, almost every single word in that chapter appears in Psalm 18. The Bible liked this song so much, it played it twice. Sounds like the radio. You know, there's some songs that the radio likes and they play them all of the time. Well, here's one on repeat in scripture. Lord is my rock the horn of my salvation, my fortress, my deliverer. Not only are those specific individual words find themselves throughout the Psalms and songs of salvation, but verbatim, 2 Samuel chapter 22, I got it right, 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 are matches. The same song printed twice for us to understand the, the, the nature and the character of God. You go to Second Samuel chapter 23, and it's literally a declaration of all God had done and almost a prophecy, an inspired utterance prophesying over what God would do. Because David understood that the God who put him on that throne would keep his family on that throne for all eternity. He didn't know how it was going to take place and that ultimately a savior would come from God, but the lineage of David, who would be Jesus Christ to live on the throne of people's lives forever. But at some point, David is prophesying over something good happening in Israel's future because of what God had done in his specific family. And when I read Second Samuel chapter 23, all I can say is, Lord, please do something that is for your good through my tiny little family. And through my tiny little six-year-old. 
would you, would you do something? Could, could, could we just prophesy over his life? Could we just claim some kind of hand of blessing that you who started something will be faithful to finish something and that in that tiny little life, in this tiny little family, you'll do something that's ultimately for your good, the good of us and, and the good of all mankind so that other people might see and know that you, David, is praising God, saying you started something here. And prophetically, you're going to be faithful to continue to fulfill your promises here so that other people can know and recognize what I'm singing about right now, that you are good. In 2 Samuel chapter 22 and 23, David worshiped and he declared. He worshiped the God of this universe and declared his faith and his trust in him and his plan. A mountaintop experience of a life where you're just literally doing nothing but celebrating the goodness of God. I've had those moments. And maybe you have too. We, we call them these mountaintop experiences. A kid, I went to camp and it was great. And I learned so much about Jesus. And I understood what God's call on my life was and what I would be doing for all eternity. I go off to college and I join this Bible study group in this campus ministry. And I get summer jobs out of it. Like they literally hire me out of campus ministry to go and do jobs in the summer to tell other kids about Jesus. And I'm traveling around the state of North Carolina getting to meet kids and tell them about Jesus for money. I mean, isn't that great? Like somebody's paying me to do this. I could go back and bag groceries at the Harris Teeter. You guys don't know Harris Teeter. It was bought by Kroger. Like go back and bag groceries at the Harris Teeter like I had done all those other summers and that would have been fine and well and good and respectable. But God allowed me to go around the state of North Carolina and tell other kids about Jesus. And guess what happened when I did? Met a girl. Y'all, she was so pretty. So I married her. And then all of a sudden, the Lord has allowed us to do this together for the last 19 years. And kids can't, I mean, like there was goodness that there's been some mountaintops along the way. Also some valleys, also some troubles. And sometimes the valleys have come. And I'd like to let everybody know that sometimes the valleys come because the world's just bad and other people in it do mean things or that things just fall apart and that there's pestilence and floods and things that are just awful. But sometimes the valleys come. Let me raise my hand and be honest. Sometimes the valleys come because I sin. I create my own mess and my own mud hole that then I just have to lie in for a little while. And in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and 23, David worshiped and declared and gave us a mountaintop experience that was repeated later for us to be able to read how good God is. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 24, you know what he did? He sinned. And before any of us get real hard on David, for going from here in his relationship with God down to here in his relationship with God. And say, how does a person do that? How do you praise God with your lips one minute and then go out and curse some man with your lips in another minute? Well, welcome to Sundays in churches across America and Mondays in workplaces across America. You and I come in here and we get our second Samuel chapter 23 and 20, 22 and 23 on. And then we go out there and we take with us the second Samuel chapter 24. It says in that book that again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he incited David against them saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. And scholars differ over this word because that, that idea of inciting someone to do wrong in the actual Hebrew language, there's no subject for that verb. 
And, and so then scholars have to sit there and differentiate, like, who did the inciting? Was it just the anger of the Lord that incited David to do it, the fact that God was punishing them for their sin? Or was it God himself who said, you, I want you to sin? We know from the whole of Scripture that that's not the case. First Chronicles says that it was actually Satan who incited David to sin. And because of our view of the sovereignty of God, we know that if Satan comes in to tempt and comes in to put a situation in your life where you may or may not do the right thing, the book of Job, it's literally ultimately God's permission that allowed that to happen in the first place. And so somehow or another, whether there's a subject and a verb that agree or not, David was incited to do the wrong thing. And instead of passing that test, he succumbed. It says, so the king said to Joab and the com- Manders of the army with him go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of the Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? You're reading this and you're thinking, well, these other people know that taking a census is a really bad idea. And I don't know why in this moment taking a census was a really, really bad idea. But I do know that if you go back to the book of Numbers, the Lord told them that everything belongs to him. And that if the Lord wanted to take a census, the Lord would have ordered Uh, Since it's the king's word in verse four, however, overruled Joab as the king's word tends to do and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. They took a census. And I. Sit back and I wonder what what does that mean in the life of David? It means that in second Samuel chapter 22 and 23, he declared the goodness and the sovereignty of God who had a plan to save his people. But in second Samuel chapter 24, he got a little bit nervous and said, I need to figure this out on my own. And I need to know how many warriors I have and how many able bodied soldiers I have. And began to live his life thinking that what ultimately belonged to the Lord really belonged to him. Before I go judging David, I have to give a recount for all the times in my life I've I've fearfully looked at what ultimately belongs to the Lord and thought that it really belonged to me. Or, or, Or looked at what was ultimately the responsibility of the Lord or the decision of the Lord or the timing of the Lord or the will of the Lord and decided that that responsibility rested on my shoulders or that that sovereign choice was somehow mine and that I alone could be the determiner of my own destiny. So David sinned by thinking that the army was his and that the responsibility was his over all of Israel. In one moment, he worships and he declares, and the next one, he sins. What it tells me is this. It's not our worship that makes us worthy before the Lord because we are such a fickle people. We can go on that roller coaster ride of saying, God is good, but I am better all the time. We're fickle people. And thankfully and rightfully so, it's not our worship that makes us worthy. It's not the things that we say and the songs that we sing and the thoughts that we declare in this place on a Sunday morning, gathered together as a people of God, reaching out, growing up and giving all, telling him that he's great. Lucky for us, it's not our worship that makes us worthy. And none of us 
If King David wasn't, then none of us are immune to the attacks of the enemy in life. So riding high on the top of the mountain, coming out of the worship service, knowing that God is good, giving testimony about how faithful he is, that does not make me worthy of God's attention. And it also does not make me immune to the attacks of the enemy out there in this world who want nothing more than me to stumble and suffer. So David did what disrespected the Lord. David did what ultimately angered God. Are you ever guilty of acting like the things that belong to the Lord belong to you? Or of assuming that the responsibility and that the decisions that lie at the Lord's feet are really yours to mess around with? 2 Samuel 22 and 23, David worshiped and declared, but in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David sinned. But if you keep going in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David also confessed. I've been talking about that the past couple of weeks because sexual sin came into David's purview and he failed miserably. Failed miserably and Nathan, the prophet, had to look at him and give him a story to prove how he failed. Like at some point, David had to come to that conclusion on his own. Nathan tells him this made-up story and then he finally says, you are that man. Just so that David could come to the realization on his own that he was a sinner. When I look back over the story of what happened between David and Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and ultimately what Nathan had to say to him, what I proclaim to the Lord is, Lord, please always let there be a Nathan in my life who will point out my sin to me. But Lord, also, please let there be a Nathan in my life who can just tell me when I'm wrong, but doesn't have to go through this crazy story and get me to accept it. I don't want to be the guy who has a hard time accepting that I failed. Or a hard time for someone to prove to me that I'm wrong. And so we know that in those moments when David finally realizes what he did was wrong, he ultimately comes to a place of confession. And that's exactly what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 24. In verse 10, it says, David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. No, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David had gotten up the next morning, continues in verse 11, the word of the Lord came to Gad, the prophet David's seer, and he says, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to give you some options. And so he gives David these choices, none of them really better than the other. And finally, all David could do is worship. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and 23, on a mountaintop of an experience, David worshiped and he declared. But in 2 Samuel chapter 24, he sinned and that could be the end of the story. But it wasn't because he came to a place of repentance where he realized what he did was wrong. And he confessed and then followed that up with a sacrifice. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David just didn't sin and confess. He also sacrificed Skip down to verse 17. It says, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people because there was a plague, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong, but these are the sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. 
So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arunah looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arunah said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? Just a customary greeting. I mean, wouldn't you like to enter a room and people just start bowing down? That would be bad for us, y'all. Oh, the pride. Oh, the arrogance that we would deal with if we were the king. I can't imagine. But Arana did what he was supposed to do. He walked and he bowed down to the Lord, the king, his servant. And David answered, to buy your threshing floor. So I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. And Arana said to David, let my Lord, the king, take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. And here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arana, gives all this to the king. Arana also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. Here's the deal. I'll give it to you. I'll give you the threshing floor, all of the tools that I normally use on the threshing floor, a couple of oxen that you can use on the threshing floor. And I'll also give you my best wishes that God receive you and that it, good luck. I hope it goes well. Like you get everything. And David, the king replied to Arana, no, I, insisting, I insist on paying you for it. And then we get this verse and it comes like a memory for us, something that we we hold on to when it comes to giving and trusting and, and giving and, and trusting and giving and trusting and giving and trusting our lives to the Lord. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague of Israel was stopped. There's a couple interesting things here. First of all, what is a threshing floor? It's the pounded out plot of land that's literally made level and flat because of the oxen that pound, pound, pound as they're dragging the wheat across it. And then the, the, the men and the women, they come with these kind of like sickle things and they grab the wheat and they chaff and they, they beat it on the ground so that the husks separate. And then they, they throw the wheat into the air and the wind blows the chaff away and the wheat falls down so that they can gather it and go and use it to make bread. It's not only a business place. It's not only a... a, a a work site for people to do manual labor. It's also a powerful symbol of what God does for us. This particular threshing floor was a pretty powerful place. It was on a mountain called Moriah, where we know Abraham, generations before, had been called to go and climb and sacrifice his own son, Isaac. It's a special place. The idea of wheat and grain for all of Israel's history had been a symbol of blessing. But the idea of threshing and separating had been a reminder of God's judgment. And so on this place that had historical significance, on this place that represented both blessings from God and the judgment of God, David would make his sacrifice and receive mercy from God and then on that same site, his son Solomon would come and build the temple of God so that worship happened there continually. And the site that was built up by the majesty of his son would be a constant reminder that God blesses, but that God also judges. So you get this picture of David who sinned, but who was willing to confess and ultimately make a sacrifice we're reminded that it's, it's, it's not 
just the place. The, the, the location, the place, the type of place that it was and the location of the place that it bore, like that stuff did matter. The place of David's sacrifice did matter. Just not as much as God's place in his heart. Psalm 51 says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. So at the end of the day, it wasn't the place that mattered on the ground, in the geography, in the real estate, the 50 shekels of transaction that made it possible for David to own that particular plot of land. It wasn't the, the place that mattered, but God's place in David's life that mattered. And at some point, we ask ourselves the question, that same question. Does our place in this world matter as much as God's place in our hearts? Answer to that is no. Does our place on the corporate ladder or our place in whatever company we keep or whatever group we're a part of or whatever opportunities we have matter as much as God's place in our lives? Nope. So how do you want to be remembered? How, how is it that you want to be thought of? It would be easy to look at David's life and remember his sin. But what scripture does is tell us that he was a man who worshipped and sacrificed and was ultimately someone after the very heart of God. Ultimately, that's how he's remembered, even though his sin will never be forgotten. So we go to the New Testament, and we land in Judaism, and what was going on around Jesus' day and the start of the early church. And in Acts 13, verse 22, it says, God testified concerning David this, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. It goes on to say, after, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So David is remembered as being the great, 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 great ancestor of our once and for all servant Savior who was the champion over everything. And instead of being remembered for his sin with Bathsheba or his sin of counting the fighting men, he's remembered for being someone who, who sought the very heart of God, someone who didn't Think twice about offering to God that which cost him everything because he wanted to make peace with God and he wanted to ultimately represent God and he wanted to be remembered for Second Samuel chapter 22 and 23 and what he declared about God more than his own human nature of succumbing to the threats of the enemy in this world and giving into his own sin and temptation and he was. Looking back over the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, there was something I failed to see for a really long time, um, something that I didn't quite 
notice, like we get really excited because in the genealogy of Judaism, there's several women mentioned, which is unheard of in Judaism. It was a patriarchal society and it was male dominated. And so if you wanted to go through the lineage of anybody in scripture, it's literally man, 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 one father after another, one grandfather after another, one great grandfather after another, somehow begatting or producing all of these leaders and all of these people that we see throughout Old Testament history. And some of the women in the room, you just want to that, well, they didn't get those kids by themselves. Like they had, there was a woman in the mix. But more often than not, none of those women's names are mentioned until you get to the genealogy of Jesus. And several notable women are present. And in most cases, they're, they're not women with great repetitions or great, like great histories or great, pat- like some of them are women of the older people. Like it's not a good thing, but yet their names are mentioned in the story. And I remember reading very distinctly that when you get to the life of David, it says in Matthew chapter one, verse, and Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother, and some of your Bible translations are just going to spell it out for you, Bathsheba. You're like, great. She gets her name mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, (gasps) had been Uriah's wife. to Acts chapter 13 and the way that David is remembered for all eternity as a man who sought the very heart of God and the sin that he committed with Bathsheba may have been forgiven, but it was not forgotten because the man he killed, the man whose wife he took, he also got his name in the genealogy of Jesus. So that every time we read the story of how God gave us the absolute greatest gift any of us have ever been given, we take note, David sinned. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we don't gloss over this man's life and say that everything he did was right. I'm thankful that by the sovereignty of God, David's sin, David's mistakes, and there's more of them. Y'all, his kids made some big-time mistakes. We skipped those chapters, and David was right there. There's some problems in his family. And yet he gets to be remembered as someone who pursued the heart of God, even as a sinner. The essence of a godly legacy and godly leadership isn't sin-free, but it is Christ-focused. You see, sin in your rear view, and we all have it, doesn't keep us from entering heaven or helping others see Jesus when we're people who pursue the heart of God. That's why this table is significant. And that's why this communion matters. Because we can come to this people not as perfect, but as forgiven. We can receive this gift and the symbolic nature of Christ, body broken and bloodshed that it represents, not as a perfect people, but as a forgiven people. Those with sin in the rear view because we're heading a different direction. So we ask ourselves a question this morning. What, what, how do we want to be remembered? What does it mean to be of value? 
to be a man or a woman after the very heart of God. It doesn't mean that there's no sin in your life. And it means that there's no unconfessed sin in your life. Because you're a person who realizes when you make mistakes. A person who realizes when you take matters into your own hands. A person who realizes when you stop trusting the heart and the direction and the will of God in your life. And so we come to this table recognizing that Jesus Christ came as a fulfillment of God's promise to give us a king through David, a forever, once and for all, forever, eternally reigning king through the line of David, who would ultimately, in order to be a champion, would first become a servant and give his life to be brutally executed so that our sin might be atoned for and that we could be forgiven and stand right in the presence of God and always be remembered not for what we were but for what we can be in Christ so this time I'd like to invite the men and women who who serve in our church a six men wives ministers um, to take their places and we'll come to this table knowing and trusting that God is good that he loves us and has given us his son as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. And as you do, um, as you receive, I I invite you to know and to experience that whatever life you've lived and whatever pain you've caused and whatever problems have arisen can really be in the past. And, And while they may never be fully forgotten you can always be remembered as somebody who pursued God with your whole heart because they're confessed and you're forgiven so maybe you want to take a moment this morning to enter into a time of confession and just tell God okay this is it these are the places where I've made mistakes these are the places where I have erred these are where I have trusted my own judgment instead of yours this is where my pride and my selfishness and my place in this world has taken over your place in my life. But then come, take a cracker, take some juice. Be reminded of the sacrifice that was made for you so that you could experience a a fullness of life and blessing so that you can leave that valley and go right back to that mountain of praising and declaring the goodness of God. Knowing that you'll stumble tomorrow and probably make another mistake, but fully recognizing that God's sacrifice has already in advance paid the price for that. You just come back and say, I recognize it. I get it. I'm full of mistakes. Thanks for pulling me back in, God. Thanks for welcoming me home again, God. Thanks for restoring me once again, God, and freeing me up, not to make the same mistake twice, but to stumble through another door and trust that in spite of who I am as a man or a woman, I'm made new in Christ. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. For the the service of sacrifice that you made and the opportunity that we have to tell you that we trust you today. We worship you, Jesus. We declare that you are good, Jesus. Knowing that tomorrow is another day and it's probably going to be full of the moments in life where we turn back and trust ourselves again. But Father, we ask that supernaturally you'll 
you'll do the powerful Holy Spirit work of keeping us focused in your direction after your heart that you'll continually put people in our place to remind us when we're not and that we will always willingly be a people who confess our sins to you and trust that you are faithful to forgive. You're our champion because you are our servant and we thank you for that. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and because of Jesus that we are invited to come. There are two stations in the back and one at the front. You can make your way down either aisle. If you're unable to make it to one of the communion stations, we just ask that you slip up your hand and one of those servants in the back will see you and they'll come to you. This is an opportunity for us to be reminded of the goodness of God and to, in a symbolically way, tell God that we trust him and that we love him. This is a 2 Samuel 22 and 23 moment where we worship and declare the goodness of God and our gratitude to him for forgiving our sin. Amen.